We are going to turn in the Word now. We're going to be in a couple different places. We begin our Advent series, Jesus the First and the Last. And so if you turn with me, maybe the best place to go is Luke chapter 2. We're going to be in a number of different places, but that's as good a place as any to park because I think we'll spend more time there than anywhere else. So, you know, this time of year... As we come to Advent, if you're unfamiliar with kind of the church calendar, we call this season Advent that we've entered into where we think about the coming of Jesus into the world. We think about the eternal second person of the Trinity becoming flesh, becoming human and dwelling among us. And so we turn our attention to that. We've been in the Gospel of John in a series uh, examining the Gospel of John, but we're going to turn now for the next several weeks from now until Christmas to think about the incarnation of Jesus Christ and so we, you know, there's something about the incarnation that's not complex to get, I would argue, right? I mean, would you agree with that? It's somewhat simple. The, the proclamation that Jesus eternally existed with the Father, and then he became human at one point. And he lived on the earth, and then he died and was raised again. That's not a complex statement to make or hard to understand. And yet, if we're honest and we ponder it, we understand that there is something incredibly beyond us, in our underst- beyond our understanding in trying to grasp what actually happened in the incarnation. You know that, right? That there is something for God to take on flesh is something that is, while maybe simple to say, complex to understand and hard to fathom. And so we take time year in and year out to ponder this in this season that we call Advent. And our hope is that we'll pull back some of those layers so that we might understand and consider more fully. Now we've titled this series, The First and the Last. When you find that term, when you you find Jesus referring to himself as the first and the last in Revelation chapter 1, He's more than likely there referring to the fact that he is the first, the creator of all things, and he is the last, the one who will be the judge of all things. We're using the term a little differently as you think about Advent because what we want to do in this Advent season is think about the first coming of Jesus and the last coming of Jesus and contrast those two. I want to see if we can't gain a little more insight about the nature of Jesus' incarnation, his first coming, and his life on earth if we can't gain a little more understanding about the mystery of that and the profound nature of it by understanding who he is and will reveal himself to be when he comes again for us one day. Now, if you're a part of the church, if you've been raised in the faith, we say that we believe Jesus is coming back. They didn't just die and rise again to go sit at the right hand of the Father and then stay there, but that one day he will come back and somebody say amen to that because that's our great hope is that all that's wrong in the world will be made right one day. All that's wrong in us will be made right one day when Jesus comes back again. So at the risk, at the risk of rushing past the first coming to just get to the second coming, we don't want to do that, but to think about the first coming in light of the last coming. That's what we're going to spend the next couple of weeks doing. Now I want to say that as we think about the incarnation, we ponder not just to gain new information. Yes, church? We ponder to praise. We ponder weighty things so that we would be a people filled with praise for God, that we would treasure him more. That's our ambition, that worship would rise up in our hearts. And pondering the incarnation has numerous benefits, but I want to give you two that every Advent when we come to this time, I think are incredibly beneficial. When we ponder the incarnation, it humbles us because we have to admit that there are things that will always be a mystery to us. 
And no matter how long we think about them, how deeply we think about them, how intelligent we may be, no matter how long and hard we research and read and think, there will always be an aspect of it that's a mystery to us. And that's a humbling reality, yes? When you ponder the incarnation, God become man, it, it is intended to bring a humility to you. So there's a, there's a weight of humility that comes from pondering the incarnation. And the other thing I would say that I just wanted to point out today that's so valuable in pondering the incarnation is that it should deeply assure you of God's love for you. That Jesus has left his eternal throne and what we say in theological terms, condescended. And that doesn't mean like condescend how we think of it now where I, if I speak to you in a condescending way, that's not good, right? That's belittling you. But when we say that Jesus condescended, what, he mean, what we mean is he stooped. He, he, he became something that was utterly beneath him in order to come and be with us. And so when we say he condescended, that, that's what we mean. And when we ponder that, it brings a deep assurance of God's love that Jesus, sent by the Father, would leave the eternal presence of the Father and leave his throne in eternal glory. He was surrounded by worshiping angels for all time. Has left that space to come and enter into this space, to come and be with us. And I know that during this season, it's interesting in church life, when you're a pastor, one of the things that happens during this season is that ju there just seems to be a lot more difficulty that starts to come to the surface in people's lives. A lot more sickness, a lot more family difficulty. And so you find yourself spending time with people who are just feeling some hurt. And what a, what a privilege that is to get to do that, to enter those moments with folks is a real privilege to get to do that. But you recognize that it, it reminds me every year at this time um, how easy it is to forget how deeply loved we are by God. It's, it can be, we're so quick to forget it. And part of my hope in pondering the incarnation is that as you wrestle with whatever the brokenness is that kind of comes to the surface during this season in your life, because it's, you know, if you haven't seen something yet, I mean, just give it a couple weeks, it, it's probably coming. Right, where you're going to start to realize something or see something or there's this brokenness in this family relationship or whatever it may be. And you're going to be wrestling through that. And as you wrestle through it, I want you to remember every Sunday how deeply loved you are by God. And there's a great evidence of that, and it's that he sent his son into the world. He came to us because we couldn't come to him. So pondering the incarnation just has these incredible benefits. And so we do it year in and year out in this season to remember that. So we're going to talk about one aspect of that each week and compare and contrast his first coming and his last coming. So let's do that today. And, and we'll use a little visual, visual illustration. I had some fun uh, looking for some Google images this week. So let me show you a couple. Here's our first one. Anybody know who that is? Yao Ming. All right, if you're not a basketball person, these images are going to be very unfamiliar to you. But don't worry. We'll catch you up. Yao Ming, if anybody knows, is seven feet six inches tall, and that's Yao sitting in a very ordinary chair, and he makes it look very small, doesn't he? Yeah, all right, how about this next one? <laughs> that's Tyson Chandler laying in a bed at the Olympic Village where the American basketball team was competing in the Olympics, and he doesn't quite fit. Can you see that? Or how about this one? <laughs> that's J.J. Watt riding a kid's bike. True story, he broke that bike and had to buy the kid a new bike. 
So that's the tradition that they have right outside of uh, Lambeau Field where all the players come in for a preseason game and they ride this bike. J.J. Watt is something like 6'6 and about 260 pounds and he's riding a child's bike. Or this last one, that's Shaquille O'Neal getting into a smart car, which doesn't look so smart when he's getting into it. So those are just a few pictures of people who are of uncommon size. Yes, have you ever been around a professional athlete? So I can remember the first, so I played high school basketball. I can remember one of the first times I realized that I was not gonna go very far in this sport. I was playing against a guy who was one of the top ranked players out of a neighboring state of ours, out of Louisiana. His name was Lester Earl. He ended up playing college basketball at Kansas. And at one point, a shot went up and I turned around to get the rebound and I was, you know, I was blocking out as you're taught and, and Lester ran from behind me and jumped over me and I just watched his two legs go past me. He grabbed the ball, landed on the ground, jumped straight back up and dunked the ball and I thought to myself, I should probably just quit this game. He's of another species of human. I, I don't know what to do with that. I, my first Dallas Mavericks team, when I got to see an NBA professional basketball game for the first time, if you've never seen this, uh, a friend of mine had some good seats and we went and we sat pretty close. I was blown away because this is the same size court that I had played basketball in my entire life and there always seemed to be a lot of space on that court and when you filled it with 10 men, the smallest of whom was about 6'4", it looked like there was nowhere to move. It looked like they completely filled the space up. You see, these men are of uncommon size. Yes, I mean, that's kind of what we see there. They're of uncommon size. And when you try and jam the uncommon into something common, it's almost comical, right? It looks really interesting. And to say the least, you can tell it doesn't quite fit when you try and put the uncommon in what is common. But see, here's the thing. As we think about the incarnation today, I want us to think about the commonness of the incarnation of Jesus, the ordinariness of it. See, part of the, the astounding fact when we think about Jesus' incarnation is not just that he came, but that he came to such a common existence. And there's no one that's ever been more uncommon than him, yes? And yet he put himself in the most ordinary and the most common of lives in a, in a very real sense. And I want us to ponder that a little bit today. See, he didn't just choose to become human, but he chose to live a certain kind of human life. He could have come to a throne. He could have been a king on the earth and it still would have been utterly beneath him. But he didn't choose to come to a throne. He didn't choose to come to a crown. He chose to come in a completely different way. And so I want us to think about that a little bit today. So let's do this. Here's the roadmap for you. Let's look at the commonness or the ordinariness of Jesus in his first coming. And then I want us to look at the extraordinariness or the majesty of Jesus in his second coming, in his last coming, so that we can see exactly how uncommon a thing we've been trying, we've squeezed into such a common thing. And then we'll think about the implications for us. So let's look at two aspects of the commonness of Jesus. The first is that he had a common appearance and the second is that he had a common background. He had a common background. So the commonness of Jesus' appearance, we find this in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2. And we'll put this on the screen for you. This great prophecy about the Messiah who would come. Listen to what it says. It says, For he grew up before him like a young plant 
and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So Isaiah, in prophesying about the Messiah who would come, is noting the commonness of his appearance. And the point is to say that when looking for the Messiah, the people should not be looking for the person with extraordinary physical attributes. They shouldn't be looking for this Savior, the Christ who is to come, to be someone who's going to stand out because of their statue, statue, uh, stature or because of their handsomeness. Now, this is not how people are going to be drawn to him. He's going to draw them in a different way. Now, this is even more, I think, understood when we think back to how Israel found their first king. Do you remember Saul? And that when he was chosen, the description of Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 2, he was the tallest and the most handsome. In other words, he was exactly who you would expect to have as a king. He was the one that when you looked across a room and you said, who in this room looks like they should be king, Saul would be the one that you would pick because he was the tallest and the best looking. Now, you might think that perhaps just in the ancient world, that's the way they chose their kings because they needed them to be at the head of an army and therefore they wanted them to be the biggest and the strongest. They wanted them to look the best when they got off the airplane, so to speak, right, for the game. And everybody went, oh, wow, if that's the king, we might not want to mess with them. But we do the same thing today. In April of 2018, Business Insider Magazine had an article that, that said that taller men are more likely to be promoted, they are more likely to make more money, and there are more Fortune 500 CEOs that are above average height than not. Sorry, short guys, I don't know what to say. Right? We do the same thing. We still look at earthly things and we say, oh, that guy fits the bill. That guy is the one, right? But there's something about Jesus that drew people and it wasn't his physical attributes. You see, God was intentional. Think about this. God was intentional in not giving his son an extraordinary physical appearance. He actually said it in a prophecy hundreds of years before he would ever send his son that he wasn't going to make him the tallest or the best looking, but rather he was gonna give him a common appearance. He wasn't going to give him majesty in his physical appearance. It was part of God's design for Jesus in his first coming, which means that it was part of the message that he was sending into the world. Do you remember that we saw in John chapter 1 when we saw that Jesus was the word of God? Yes? And when we saw that, we, what we understood that to mean was that Jesus is the very message of God that's coming into the world. So everything about Jesus is the message that God wants the world to get from him. And therefore, Jesus' appearance is part of the message that he is sending to the world. Now, we'll think about that a little bit more in just a moment. But let's think about Jesus' common background. He wasn't just common in his appearance, but he had a common background. In, in Isaiah 53, verse 2, the, what we just read, it said he was like a root out of dry ground. Do you know what that means? That means that's a way of saying that he would not come from the kind of environment that you would expect a ruler to come from. He was a root that was able to grow even though it was in dry ground. In other words, not from the ideal circumstances or the ideal setting. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, this is what it says about Jesus' background. It says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. 
Here's another prophecy in the Old Testament in Micah chapter 5 that's about the Messiah telling us that the Messiah would be born where, church? In Bethlehem, right? And what does it make a point to say about Bethlehem when it's pointing out that this is where the Savior of the world, the Messiah, is going to be born? It makes a point to say that it is too little to be counted among the clans of Judah. In other words, the point is Bethlehem is not a special place. Now people go there now because Jesus was born there and we think of it as a very special place. But in its day, Bethlehem was nothing special. It was a, it was a podunk, nowhere town. And this is where God was intending to send the Savior of the world. Now let's go even further about the commonness of Jesus' background. In Luke chapter 2, verse 7, let's look at that. Speaking about Mary, it says, She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Have you thought about the absolute irony that the creator of the entire world, that there was no space for him when he came into the world. That when he was coming, no one had room. Who doesn't have room for a woman in labor? Everywhere they turned, doors shut. And he was born in a stable, born among animals. There is no more common place to be born. I don't mean common and that's where most people were born. I mean lowly. There is nothing more lowly than to be born in a stable. It continues to baffle me to this day when I think about the insignificance of this sort of place where Jesus was born, that someone wouldn't have made room, that someone wouldn't have said, you know what, you're in labor, let me let you have my room, but rather would subject her to go out into the elements and say, no, you can give birth out in the stable. Look, by contrast, when our first two kids were born, when our first kid was born, our friend who was a labor and delivery nurse in Austin worked a double shift just to stay with us to make sure we got special care. And then when our second kid was born, our OB Jen, who was an awesome lady, said, I'm going I'm to not go on vacation so that I can be there. I'm going to go late on my vacation just so I can be there because I want to make sure I deliver your baby. These people, we're nobody. And these people made sure they gave a special care and attention for the birth of our children. The Savior of the world was being born, and no one had time to give him a room. Let's go beyond that. In Luke chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, so it's the next set of verses. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. Now this is a somewhat extraordinary moment, yes? This is a little less common, angels appearing in the sky, but who did they appear to? To shepherds, the most common of people. So Jesus is born in a very ordinary place. And then his birth is announced, not to the entire world, but to the most ordinary of people, to a group of shepherds. Then go to Luke chapter 2, verse 22 through 24. So just down a little bit further. And now we read... And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him, that's Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. 
All right, now pause there because you need a little bit of Old Testament background to understand what's going on here. It says that the offering that's to be made for the firstborn is a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons, but the actual offering that's supposed to be offered is a lamb. But there's a provision made in the law in the Old Testament for those who have no money, for those who are poor. In order to still obey the law, they can sacrifice something that they can't, if they can't afford a lamb, then they can sacrifice turtle doves or they can sacrifice these other types of birds. And so what do we learn from that? We learn that Jesus isn't just born in a really ordinary place and his birth isn't just announced to a group of very ordinary shepherds, but also we learn that he comes to a family of very ordinary means. So ordinary, in fact, that they don't have money to offer a lamb. Now there's something telling in that the lamb has come to them and he will ultimately be sacrificed. He will be the sacrifice they offer. But... In this moment, they offer a pair of turtle doves because it's all they can afford. Now in John chapter 1, verse 46, so flip over then to John chapter 1, just after Luke. And we just studied this together not too long ago, but in John chapter 1, verse 46, we find this. This is Jesus now calling disciples to himself. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. All right, it's just one verse, but here's what I wanted to point out. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, which is a place of no account, and then he was raised in Nazareth, in Nazareth, which is also a place of what? No account. In fact, Nathaniel's not even sure anything good can come from Nazareth, and later on we're gonna find that the religious leaders are gonna say about Jesus, hey, prophets don't come from Nazareth, Therefore, there's no way this guy's of the Lord. That's going to be one of the reasons they're going to use to dismiss him. At every turn, the ordinariness of Jesus' first coming is on display. And then finally, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 13, let me show you what we find there. This is our last one as we think about the commonness of the incarnation, the first coming of Jesus. Matthew chapter 2, verse 13, it says about Jesus' family. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Now, here's the interesting thing, is Jesus, in his earliest days, becomes not just born in a common place, not just born to common people of common means, not just raised in a common place eventually in Nazareth, but he becomes a refugee, which is one of the most lowly or the most difficult of existences, thrust away from your home with no family support system, trying to figure out a way to make, and he has to do that because Herod is seeking to kill him. And will uh, we'll commit great atrocities in doing so. The first coming of Jesus, in a very real sense, was incredibly ordinary. Do you see what I mean, church? It was incredibly ordinary. And that, in and of itself, is pretty astounding. But now I want you to see who Jesus is going to be revealed to be when he comes again. And I want you to think about the reality of this person living his life in the way that we just saw he lived it, in the, in the way in which he was born, in the place in which he was raised. Because now turn with me to think about the majesty of Jesus in his last coming. 
in Revelation chapter 1, so all the way to the end of the Bible. And we think about the second coming of Jesus. And we're going to look at two texts out of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1, verse 12 through 17. And Revelation 19, verse 11 to 16. Listen to this description. This is John receiving a vision which he is to write about the future and what is to come. And beginning in verse 12 of chapter 1, it says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last." So let's just look through these descriptors for Jesus because each one is incredibly meaningful. You see, in this text, we find that Jesus appears and he's wearing a long robe and a golden sash. In other words, he is clothed in the finest clothing, a royal wardrobe of great splendor. And then we see that his hair is white like wool. And those of us whose hair is getting white or is already white should say, that's what real beauty looks like. Right, Hair white like wool, conveying his beauty and his purity and his age and wisdom. Daniel chapter 7 verse 9, there's a descriptor there of one called the Ancient of Days, a descriptor of God himself. And the description is very much like this. Hair white like wool, face aflame like fire. Right, Glory too much to behold. So in other words, in Revelation what we're seeing is this is the very Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7 verse 9. The sun is one with the Ancient of Days. His eyes are like fire, it says here in Revelation chapter 1. In other words, his gaze purifies and consumes. His feet are like burnished bronze, which means the precious, beautiful metal are, is conveying his path and his ways are good and valuable. All Jesus' steps, everywhere he would lead, is good and of great value. He has a voice like the roar of many waters. He speaks with authority and power when he speaks. When he speaks, it is so. His face is shining like the sun. In other words, it's glorious beyond what we can behold. So think for a moment with me, church. The one who was so common to look at when he came the first time that no one would consider him to have any majesty, no one would be drawn to him because of his appearance in any way or think he was anything special, of, probably of average height, of average stature, of average appearance, nothing to draw us in his appearance. It's this one who is clothed in that ordinary appearance with eyes like fire and a face so brilliant and beautiful that you can't look at it. In fact, to look on him was to fall down as if dead. This is John the very servant of Jesus, who sees him in his revealed glory, the one who had walked with him in his ordinariness, 
John, who was called the beloved disciple, the one who leaned on Jesus' bosom at the Last Supper and said, I'm right here with you. The one who knew him as well, if not better than anyone who knew him on the face of the earth. When he sees Jesus in his revealed glory, he falls down because he cannot fathom one so majestic. And this one is the one who came as a baby in a manger. Let's think about an uncommon background. Because we saw all the ways in which Jesus intentionally came into a very ordinary existence. But look at Revelation chapter 19. So just flip a little bit further in your scriptures. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 through 16. Now this is describing the second coming. If that Revelation 1 passage is John's vision and Jesus revealing himself to John because he's the one who's going to give all these visions and revelations that, that run throughout the book of Revelation... Now here's a vision of Jesus actually returning. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When he comes, far from a little nowhere town announced to a group of nobody shepherds. He will come on the clouds and every eye will see him when he comes again. No one will fail to notice this coming. It won't just be for a a, a few common people to have it announced. The whole world will see him come on the clouds. You can see it in Matthew 24 and in 1 Thessalonians 4. And in Revelation 1 that we looked at, when he comes, he will come on a white horse. It's a royal war horse that he will ride in on. This is a king coming. When he comes, he will be called faithful and true. He will immediately be recognized by all who see him as these things, faithful and true. There will be no failure of recognition this time. He will have many diadems, in other words, many crowns on his head when he comes. He isn't just crowned with one crown, but many, which is probably representative of the worship of all the nations. That every nation will bow the knee to him and say, the crown that our nation gives to its ruler now goes to him. He's the one that wears all the crowns. He will be clothed in a robe dipped in blood, which is representative of his justice, his authority to judge the nations. The blood representing not his own blood spilled, but the blood of those who have rejected him and come under God's judgment. The armies of heaven will follow him. He will be called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that's the summary of all that's said before. This closing of the description of his coming. He comes as the king to whom all other kings now bow. You recognize that's what that means. King of Kings means that he's the king of all the other kings. So in other words, the most powerful people on the earth will recognize that he's more powerful than they are. That he is their king. 
He is the Lord of all the other lords. So we think about the coming of Jesus. We think about the insignificance of the place of his birth, the insignificance of the place where he was raised, the commonness of his appearance, all those things. But I want you to understand that in light of who he truly is and will reveal himself to be, it's even more astounding, yes? It's even more astounding. This one with such a brilliant appearance to take on such a common life. The one who is the king of kings and lord of lords at the head of an army who has crowns upon crowns upon crowns on his head is the one who enters into the world, into an impoverished state, who, while he lives, said, I have nowhere to lay my head. Foxes have holes. Birds have nests. I don't have a place to lay my head. Come and follow me. Now, there's so many implications for us in this, but I just, I want to offer you two, and then we're going to come to the table of communion. The first is this. The ordinariness of Jesus' coming and life teaches us at least these two things. Number one is that salvation is for every part of creation and every part of us. See, Jesus could have come to a throne, and if he had, perhaps we would have thought to ourselves, well, I guess only the best and brightest. Maybe only those with enough resources. Maybe only those of this type of person. Maybe those are the ones to whom God has come. But Jesus came into an ordinary existence so that you and I would make no mistake about it, that salvation is for everybody. That there is no one to whom he does not come. That's part of the reason for the commonness of his life. He came into poverty so that the poor would know that he's for them. And not only that, here's the thing I want you to understand, church. It also means there's no part of you that he doesn't come to redeem. There's no part of your thinking, no part of your life, no part of your choices that he doesn't come to make new and to restore. There's nothing about you that is beyond his redeeming work. There's nothing about you that is beyond his redeeming work. He's come for every part of you. And I know, I know that some of you feel this sense of like, there's this part of me that, that seems to be too big, too much. I've done too much. I've been to this place. I've thought this thing. I've made this choice. There is nothing that is beyond his redeeming work. And I can say that with confidence because he came into such a common existence that what he wanted you to see, what he wanted me to see, is that he came for every person and every part of every person. The second thing we see, I think, from the commonness of Jesus' existence is that he uses common things to do great things. He uses common things to do great things. Maybe you're one of those people who feels like everything you touch, instead of turning to gold, it turns to dust. You know, like some people have a green thumb. Some people have the Midas touch. Like I've got a black thumb, right? I just kill everything I touch. Like it seems like everything I try, it just doesn't doesn't work. Maybe that's you. Maybe that's how you feel about trying to serve God. The thing that I want you to see this morning from the incarnation is that he has come into the type of existence that he chose to come into because he loves to use common things for uncommon purposes. He loves to use common things to accomplish great things. And that's, that's for you today to know that. No matter how common you feel intellectually, no matter how common you feel in appearance, no matter how common you feel in your skill set, 
Perhaps you feel like I've got the most common, ordinary job and the most common, ordinary family and I've got the most common, ordinary this or the most common, ordinary that. Good for you because that's exactly the kind of person Jesus loves to use. That's exactly the kind of person Jesus loves to use. Let's pray. So Lord, we thank you that you didn't just come into the world but you came in a specific way and that everything about the way you came was so intentional. Now, Lord, we turn our attention to the table. We've thought and pondered about your incarnation, your coming as a small baby into insignificant place, insignificant family, insignificant means to accomplish great ends and great purposes. And now we turn our attention to the kind of death you died, which was a common kind of death far below you, but in it we know that we find life. And so we come to your table now. We pray that you receive us as we receive you. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.